All right, good morning, friends. Oh, man. Uh, Today's the topic of the message will be biblical masculinity. So please get your Bibles out along with your bulletin insert. I am sincerely hoping that you guys will be taking notes this morning, will be following along. Um, and while you're doing that, I want to I very openly state that this will in no way be a comprehensive message on this subject, okay? There's simply way too much to biblical masculinity to, to talk about. We, we couldn't do it in one sermon. It just, it's not going to happen. So today's going to be just an overview, okay? We're barely even going to dip our toes in the water. Um, I do want to say, though, I thought it was interesting. It hit me this morning. I, I knew that Jonathan's birthday was today. But it hit me this morning that he's turning 13, or he is 13, and he's back there totally ignoring the fact that he's being talked about. He's talking to his brother, and hey, man, what's up? Um, if he were a Jewish boy, he would be doing a, a what? A bar mitzvah today, which means son of the commandment, okay? And a bar mitzvah is the point at which for now millennia, Jewish young men have been considered men. Now, they're not fully considered men because you couldn't read the book of the Song of Solomon until you were 30, believe it or not, when you were uh, in, in ancient Jewish culture. But 13, it's very interesting. Until around World War II, there was no such thing as a teenage stage. I don't know if you guys knew that. Some of you did know that because you were teenagers then. Um, but, but maybe not, maybe not, maybe not. But basically, you were a boy as long as you wore short pants. And then when you put on man pants, you were a man. And you would go about doing man things. And unfortunately, we have, we have added this indecipherable uh, amount of time between when you probably should be doing manly things to when you actually start doing manly things. And we call it being a teenager. And young men... Like I said, this, this, was, this was not something that's part of my notes, okay, it, or my manuscript, really. It's not that. It was this morning it hit me while I was sitting in that chair that my son is 13 today, and by all accounts, in Jewish culture, you'd be a man. So you need to be paying attention this morning. <laughs> Happy birthday. And like I said, we're barely even going to dip our toes in the, in the water. But I, while the kids are finding the bingo pictures, which, by the way, I went home and tried to find the extra stuff that I had got for the treasure chest, and we had a birthday party Friday, and stuff got moved around, and I could not find them. But there will be some new stuff. I bought it. It's just not here yet. Sorry. Um, but while you're looking at the bingo pictures, I want to share with your parents why this is so, and with you 13 and up, males, I want to share with you why it felt so important that we go over this subject today. There's, there's really a couple of glaring reasons. And the first and the most obvious is that the society that we live in has such a twisted perspective on masculinity. Our culture has departed so far from any sort of biblical view, they won't even define who is a man, let alone what manliness really is. And I'm not certain whether this is, is more due to ignorance or due to arrogance, um, probably both. But for thousands of years, mankind has accepted that men and women are distinct beings who are inherently different. 
in biology, in physiology, in aptitude, and a whole host of other things. However, in the last really few decades, biblical manhood as well as boyhood, womanhood, and girlhood are all under attack. And this is true not only for, for the biblical view of masculinity, but even for, for secular traditional norms, which are based in Scripture to some extent. This, this degradation of society has greatly accelerated, really in the last eight years, and I think part of that is due to the Supreme Court decision on same-sex marriage. I'm going to put that in quotes, same-sex marriage. But what was once called a slippery slope is now in free fall. It is unbelievable how much has transpired, how much has changed in less than a decade. Now, I'm grateful that we're seeing some strong pushback from people who refuse to accept this erasure of gender roles, but, but I'm also somehow shocked, at least a little bit, that it's not the church that's leading this charge. You know, in fact, the, the, the majority of mainline denominations are either fully embracing the LGBTQ, etc. agenda, or they're splitting over it, which is, is best, in my opinion, because it has, it has a part in separating the wheat from the tares. So, so that's one reason for this message. But the other, the other reason that's more important, I think, for the men in this room and for the people listening online is that many Christian men are not walking faithfully in our God-given roles in our families, in the church, and in the community. And this is tragic. There's a desperate need for us men we men to live out what we have been created for. There's a reason that Paul explicitly states, act like men. Did you know that? Did you know that's in the Bible? It is. That's in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 16 says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Kind of funny story is uh, I was at Walmart. This was when this whole gender madness was just beginning to really ramp up. And there was a, a very obviously masculine person that was checking out my groceries. And, uh, and I referred to him. As, I said, thank you, sir. And he goes, oh, I'm a girl. And I'm like, uh, what? And he goes, he goes hence the name. And it was, it was like Jennifer or something like that. Which, by the way, I got to say this. Okay, for those of you that were here last week, I had no idea that Jonathan had Jennifer May, June, Jennifer, in his sermon. I had no idea, okay? So I said it out loud, being a smart aleck, because that's what I do, and, and Jonathan, when it showed up on the line, I, could, I almost had a heart attack. It was so funny, because, like he said, he's probably spent too much time around me. But anyway, uh, I'm sorry to, to go off, but I wanted to share that. So he has this, like, it was Sally, or some kind of, you know, very feminine, obvious feminine name on his name tag. So I was like, uh, okay, so... We started talking, and, and he ended up talking about uh, Bruce Jenner, and so we talked about that for a while, and we discussed um, how people get offended talking about certain things. I said, yeah, people get offended because uh, I talk about Jesus a lot, you know, and, and it was, we had a lot of groceries, <laughs> so this, this was a long conversation, and, uh, and at one point, he says, so, so uh, what do you think about the weather? And I was like, oh, dude, uh, sorry, <laughs> you know, and, and then uh, and when I left, you know, and I was trying to be kind. But when I left, I was walking out to the car, and it just hit me. I looked down and realized I was wearing a bright orange shirt that had 1 Corinthians 16, 13 on it 
act like men. And I was like, what a perfect shirt. That exchange. Anyway, right here in the Bible, right here in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, we have a description of men that indicates that we are to be vigilant. We're supposed to be strong. We're supposed to be firmly planted in the faith. That's what men are supposed to be like. There's a reason. There's a reason, friends, that these traits are associated with manhood because God has some very specific, very specific expectations of godly men. So what I felt led to do this week is, is expound on some very basic truths about what a godly man must not be and then some other truths about what we're made to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. So will you pray with me? Father God, I just ask in Jesus' name that I know this is not going to be a comprehensive sermon, but I pray that it will be comprehended. I pray, Father, that each person here's mind will be open to receive this, this truth. Lord, we're going to be going through so many scriptures today, and I don't usually do topical sermons, and uh, so it feels a little awkward, but Lord, I believe that you're going to reach into the hearts of some of these men and do something this morning, God, and I pray that you will give us the ability to recognize what your word teaches and what is expected of us. Help us to learn to effectively lead our families, to lead in the church, to lead in our communities, Lord. Help us to act like men. And I pray, Lord, for each person here that this, these seeds will take root and bear fruit for the name of your gospel and for the sake of your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. Friends, there are, we look at seven things in each category today. I know that sounds like a lot. I remember uh, Craig picking on me recently saying, he had a 14-point sermon once. Well, here you go, okay? So <laughs> um, we're going to go fast, though, okay? Some of, these, some of these traits are more universal, honestly. They're, they're for men and women. But many are geared much more specifically toward men. Now, I do want to ask in all seriousness, okay? And I mean this, that you wives sitting next to your husbands, not poke them in the ribs with your elbow every time you hear an area that they need growth in, okay? If, listen, and I mean this, if they have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, then your best course of action is to pray for your husbands and give the Lord time to work, okay? I think most of us men know the areas that we fall short. We know where we deserve the poke in the ribs, okay? Now, for you, you people that haven't been here before, I just want to say, or that you're newer, um, I think that, that mnemonic devices like alliteration can help us remember things. And so on days like today where there's a lot of information coming at you, I don't want to you know, hit you with a fire hose, so I think it's extra helpful. So every characteristic is going to begin with the same three letters, and that is P-R-O, okay? It's been said that every little girl growing up wants to be what? A princess. That's correct, okay? And that, that's accurate in our experience, too. But every little boy wants to grow up to be a pro in some way. We all want to excel at something, a pro ball player, an officer of the law, a fireman, a, a soldier, a pilot, an astronaut. And while most of us don't end up doing that, that particular thing, we all want to be a pro in something. Well, we're going to make a list this morning of some pros that godly men need to avoid, as well as a list of some pros that we must aspire to because we are created for them. Okay, now I want you to notice not all of these pairings are going to be uh, exact, direct opposites, I guess I should say. They're not all going to be a, a perfect juxtaposition, and, and you may notice that there's a lot of overlap 
between categories, but there are some commonalities, okay, between these positive and the, and the negative themes, and we're going to see those as we go. So let's just dive in. Men of God, we must not be procrastinators. Aren't you glad I made that disclaimer about the elbows? Aren't you? <laughs> we would all be bruised, okay? Now, perhaps I should clarify. We're not to be perpetual procrastinators. You know, of course, there are times where we, we put something off due to, uh, you know, we have, sometimes it's exhaustion. Sometimes it's just a lack of time. But if we're being honest, usually, that's not the issue, is it? We avoid doing things that need to be done because we don't want to do them. And most of the time, the thing that we are putting off, listen, is for the benefit of someone else. So to be completely blunt, we are putting ourselves ahead of that other person or those other people by avoiding something that is our responsibility and our livelihood or even our household might suffer as a result of that. You know, in Proverbs 24, Solomon says, I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of someone who had no sense. Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds, and the stone wall was in ruins. Before I get back to the manuscript, I'd just like to point out, that's a description. Thorns being everywhere is a description, friends, of what? Of the seed that's planted in a certain kind of soil, and it chokes out the fruitfulness. So bear in mind, when we procrastinate in our spiritual lives, when we don't get into the Word when we don't spend time in prayer, when we don't strive to, to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We are placing ourselves in this scenario. just want to point that out before we go any further. I think sometimes we fool ourselves into believing that letting ourselves get lazy isn't a big deal. But, but listen, putting off what needs to be done doesn't just prevent the good growth. It also allows bad growth to happen. And in some cases, like, like in this proverb, uh, it gets harder as it goes along to reverse the negative effects of procrastination. What happens if you don't mow the grass? What happens? Sometimes it dies <laughs> if, you, if you wait long enough, but that's not, that's not what we're doing here. The problem doesn't go away, does it? No. If you, if you let the grass keep growing, it gets longer and longer, and it gets what? Harder and harder to mow. It also looks terrible, and you get letters from your HOA and all that other stuff. Listen, men, we are not made to be couch potatoes. So once you have gotten enough rest to recharge after your week's work or whatever, get up and be productive because we are made to be producers. We are made to produce. Anyone here ever worked extensively in, in an inner city area? Nobody really except I, I did I did pastoring for a while. Uh, the first church I ever was officially the, the lead pastor in was a church called My Father's House. We met, um, if you know where Fair Park is, got MLK right here, Malcolm X Boulevard right here, and then there's a, a street here called South Boulevard. Our apartment complex where we ministered was right there. And it was um, very, very different culture. And if you've ever experienced an inner city culture, 
I know that, that we have uh, one, one fellow that spends a lot of time uh, in South Dallas. Then you see or have seen the effect that a lack of productive work will have on men. Men were created to work. You know that, right? Now, believe it or not, this lack of productivity and, and what results from it is not a new problem. You know, anytime that men, earn, men are not encouraged to earn a living, they become lazy and entitled. You know, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul wrote, We urge you, brothers, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Just a few lines before this, he declared, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So if you are an able-bodied man, and you are not involved in doing something, and building something, or doing something productive for society, you are not living up to your intended purpose. People, and especially men, were not designed, we weren't intended solely to consume. We were designed to work, and even to enjoy working. You know, what was the first thing that, the first directions ever given to human beings by God, the first positive direction? You know, he said, of course, don't eat of the tree. That's a negative direction. What are the, the first two positives? Keep, make babies and get a job, right? Work. You know, he says, he says be fruitful and multiply and, and what? Subdue the earth. We were created to work and to enjoy it. So be producers, not procrastinators. Okay, secondly. According to Scripture, we must not be profligates. Profligates. This is an old school term. We don't use it very much anymore, but it's a great word, and it means wasteful in a selfish sense. Other, other kind of oldie-sounding oldie words, but they're great words. Uh, dissipation, if you're living a dissipative lifestyle. If you're being licentious, you know, doing whatever the things you want to do. Before he repented, the prodigal son was a profligate. Okay, so is Samson. Okay, the, the mark of a profligate is doing what they want to do when they want to do it, which shows a distinctive lack of self-control. And self-control is a fruit of the Spirit and a necessary part of sanctification. You know, Proverbs 25 says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. It allows any kind of destructive force to just waltz right in, you know? I mean, think, think our southern border. It is so dangerous to not have self-control, and it's not just dangerous for you. Biblically masculine men have no room for a lack of self-control. You know, Paul addresses the profligate mentality in Philippians 3. He states this. He says, Many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their, their belly, meaning they, they do whatever their appetites lead them to. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Friend, if you are not accustomed to denying yourself any pleasures... Chances are you're a profligate and you need to stop it. Real men, godly men learn self-control. 
We buffet our bodies. Don't mistake that for buffet our bodies. We buffet our bodies to bring the flesh under control so that we don't dishonor God by enjoying sin. You know, even good things become sinful if we overindulge in them. So instead of directing all of our, our energies and resources to be pleasing ourselves, godly men are made to be providers. Providers. I want to pause really quickly here and point something out. It has been correctly said. In fact, this, this was said by one of my friends when I posted on Facebook. Here's what my sermon's on this week. It has been correctly said that Jesus is the ultimate example of a man. Can we all agree on that? Okay. The next closest example that we have in the New Testament is probably the Apostle Paul, who called on Christians to follow his example as he followed the example of Christ. It's 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Okay? However, most Christian men will have something that neither Jesus nor Paul had on earth, okay? And that is a wife and children. So for men who have families, our number one priority in life after maintaining our relationship with God is caring for our families. Now there's a passage in 1 Timothy 5 that really hits home on this subject. Paul writes, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a strong statement. We can't ignore this. If, if you're an able-bodied man who is capable of working, then not only should you be working, you should be using your resources to care for others. Now, it, it's interesting, I think, that the context of this passage, it wasn't limited to a man's immediate family. It was, it was referring specifically to widows being provided for by their children. See, listen, and I want you to hear this, okay? Godly men don't just care for their wives and children. They care for their parents as well. Some of you have done this for quite a while and experienced a lot of, of uh, struggle, but you're doing the right thing. Biblical men honor their mother and father. There's even a place in uh, Mark 7, Jesus, Jesus condemns the Pharisees' actions because they were hypocritically refusing to care for their parents. Anyway, the, the fact is, we all have people in our lives whom God has given us to provide for. Now, you might ask, because, you know, in, in this century, so many women are out in the workplace with professional jobs. You may ask and say, well, what if I'm not the primary wage earner in the home? You know, I've, I've told you this before, but some of you haven't heard it, so I'm going to say it again. When I was working in Greenville as the senior minister of the church, I probably made about a third of what my wife was making, so I would tell everybody, she takes home the bacon, I bring home the bacon bits, was how that worked, okay? But here's the thing, okay? Even if that's the case, you need to be serving your families by making meals, by doing chores, by teaching and shepherding and helping with the children, you know, providing for your family's needs, this goes back to being productive and, and, and not always putting off things that need to be done. Biblical masculinity means being a provider, but a godly man must avoid being a proscriber. Okay, now that's a word most of us don't know today, and that's okay. You'll, you'll have learned at least one new thing today, all right? A proscriber is a person who denounces others with a condemning attitude. Webster defines it as one that dooms to destruction 
one that denounces as dangerous or as utterly unworthy of reception. Now, obviously, there, there are times when, when evil must be denounced, must be condemned. But here, I'm referring to a generally judgmental attitude toward others. And the Bible refers to a man like this as a reviler. And Christians are actually told to steer clear of this type of person. Proverbs 12 describes a prescriber as, as one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. And it's contrasted with the tongue of the wise, which brings healing. This is the type of person, I think, that Jesus was referring to, at least, at least partly, that Jesus was referring to in Matthew 7 when he said, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured unto you. Now, side note, okay? This passage is often just ripped out of context to say something it was never intended to say. Okay, Christians, I want, I want you to hear me, okay? Christians are supposed to be discerning. The Bible tells us there are times that we are to judge. We are supposed to, to, to judge sin in the church. We're supposed to, to declare evil behavior as wickedness, but we are not to assume the place of God in judging the hearts of others or condemning them as worthless. And while this, this certainly applies you know, to, to all people in some regard, I think it is most important that godly men refuse to berate their wives and children with destructive speech. Very few things will crush a child's soul worse than being told that they're worthless. A wife who is degraded by her husband may stop seeing herself through God's eyes. Biblically masculine men reject the temptation to let negativity and anger control our speech because we're made to be protectors. Now, I believe that in general we're supposed to protect one another. But uh, even, even those of us without wives and children are supposed to protect one another. But obviously, our responsibility is far greater toward those that we have a God-given directive to protect. Now, to me, I view it as, as moving in concentric circles outward from your immediate family to your church family, and then everyone else beyond that. There's, there's varying levels of responsibility toward those that are, that are in the third circle and beyond. Sometimes we protect by speaking truth and love. Sometimes we protect by, by prayer cover. Sometimes we may stand in the gap for a person who's in need of something that we can give. But as most of the men in this room are married men, I want to reiterate that biblical masculinity includes protecting your wife and children. Now, of course, even those who, who do not fear God are typically willing to die to keep their families safe from those who would physically harm them. That's sort of a given, okay? So if that's what you're thinking about, don't just think that you stop there, Okay? We must also protect them from the evil one by our prayers. We must also protect them from the influence of the world around them by sheltering them from the wickedness that exists. And, and by the way, if you have a negative reaction to the idea of sheltering your children, please bear in mind that sheltering means protecting them from danger and from exposure to all the bad things out there. And that is exactly a father's job. Okay? Now, it doesn't mean that you have to be a helicopter parent, 
but protecting your family is your job. We also protect them from ourselves to some degree by exercising self-control in our speech. And we'll talk about this a bit more with regard to children, but there's a passage that we read earlier today that speaks directly to husbands. And I want to revisit this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He, he loved us in a, in a total self-sacrificial way. He gave up his life for her, for us, by dying on the cross to pay for our sins. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might, listen, this is why, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Men of God, we should see Christ's total devotion to making his bride spiritually mature and strive to do the same for our own bride. Instead of being negative and condemning, let's wash our wives in the word, edifying them, speaking life to them. That's a large part of being protectors. So what's next? Biblical masculinity means that we must not be provokers. Raise your hand if you enjoy being poked with a stick. I've got one right here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Obviously, no one here wants to be provoked, and yet there's this, there's this weird temptation that many men have, honestly, to irritate. Right? Can I get an amen? So, the wives are giving me the amen. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. You know, on two different occasions in my life, and I'm talking about years apart, I got stung by a wasp because I was throwing rocks. Two different times. Didn't learn the first time. You know, so I, I can't explain why men have this desire. But, but this is even more pronounced at times toward our loved ones, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. In fact, there's a natural tendency that dads have to annoy our kids. Yeah. Yeah, most of the time it manifests playfully with dad jokes and, 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 and silliness. You know, the other day... Uh, I, I told a, I said something silly in the car, and Evie goes, was that a dad joke? I said, oh, yes, it was, very much so. Um, and that's okay as long as it's fun for everyone, but it's not okay, men, for us to push our kids to anger. Sometimes when we get frustrated with our kids, there's this, this temptation to take out our feelings on them by upsetting them with our words and with our actions instead of exercising patience and self-control. And there's actually a biblical mandate against this. You know, Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, none of us will do this perfectly, friends. I, I know that I have missed plenty of teachable moments because I was being a jerk. But I am slowly learning over the years that other people, and especially my children, Respond better to being gently led as opposed to aggressively pushed. Instead of provokers, we men are created to be promoters of our people. Promoters. 
in every sense of the word. You know, help, helping them get to the, the next stage of growth. You know, talking them up. Lifting them up. Being, being their biggest fan. That is our job as men and especially as fathers. Now, that doesn't mean you ignore the harder parts of parenting, such as discipline. But when your kids do well, tell them. Let them know. Tell other people things that you appreciate about your children, both when they're present and when they're not. And, and men, please, please choose to speak well of your wives and to your wives. Okay, don't insult her. Don't, don't complain about her. You know, instead, build her up. Bolster her reputation among others. And, you know, you might catch a little flack for it because you know how guys are. You know, they'll sit there and, and they'll make, you know, the, the dumb whip noise, you know, or they'll, they'll, they'll make comments that are stupid like, well, you don't have to say that, man. She can't hear you. You know, that type of stuff. But I'll tell you what, if they don't smile and laugh when they make those comments, they are envious. <laughs> they wish they could speak well of their own brides. And as for you, you're not just setting a good example. You're being obedient to God's word. You know, Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is useful for building others up, as fits the occasion, in order that it may give grace to those who hear. Let your words build up and not tear down. Incidentally, if you haven't already noticed, a lot of these categories have to do with our words, with our speech. And this next one is no exception. Biblical masculinity means not being profane. Now, when most of us hear the word profane, we just think of swear words. Okay, but this is actually a pretty broad category. To profane something literally means to desecrate something, like burning human bones on an altar in the Old Testament. So profanity includes sins of the tongue, but not just cursing. Cursing. You know, to be profane means everything from blasphemy to being hateful or degrading towards others that are made in the image of God. I mean, again, it's, it's the book of Ephesians where Paul writes, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk, nor coarse joking or crude joking, which are out of place for the saints, we see. But, but later, in that very same sentence, he says, but let there be instead thanksgiving. When we use our tongues to praise God, we're using them for their intended purpose, men. But like James 3 tells us, you know, it, it's, it's inconsistent to praise God and then turn around and curse men. Instead, we are created to be professors of God's truth. And most importantly, his good news, the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. You know, especially when speaking to our families and the family of God, we should avoid saying unclean things, and instead we should speak words of life and grace. This is actually part of our own sanctification process, friends. You know, there's a lot of Ephesians here. In Ephesians 4, Paul refers to it as speaking the truth in love, and he connects it to growing up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. 
This is a large part of how we honor Christ, too, when speaking to those not just in our own family and in the family of God, but those outside. You know, Peter elaborates on this concept, and he tells Christians to respond to people who wonder why we're different from the world, and he tells us how to do it. In his first epistle, chapter 3, he writes to the church, in your hearts, you know this one, we've gone over it several times in the last year, in your hearts, honor Christ as holy, always being prepared to give, an, to give a, a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So friends, what, what is the reason? Or more accurately, who is the reason for the hope that we have? Jesus. Amen. Jesus Christ himself. His atoning death on the cross paid for our sins. And scripture says that we are justified by his resurrection from the dead. You know, he was, he was dead and buried, folks. But he is risen, and, and, and he's, he's alive today. He's alive here in this place. He's, he's alive here. And, and through his blood, we're, we're forgiven. We're freed from both the, the power and the penalty of sin. Now, if we believe on him, if we believe in what he did for us, that is a great reason for hope. Because God is faithful. Incidentally, faithfulness is a trait that God expects his people to have. And as godly men, we must not be promiscuous. Now you might say, duh. Okay? But before you say that, just consider this. Almost any Christian will tell you they know that adultery is a sin. But there are millions of professing Christians who are sexually active with someone they aren't married to. That is against God's word and his design. Sex outside of marriage violates the covenant of marriage, which Jesus describes in Matthew 19. He says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's referring to the, the, the sacred nature of the sexual relationship. He says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Sexual intimacy is between a husband and wife. There is no other appropriate expression. Now, Christians should know this. And we should be obedient to this, not just with our bodies, but with our minds as well. Because faithfulness is not just confined to our bodies, is it? Is it, men? No, no, it's not. After all, faithfulness is something that Jesus refers to in Matthew 5 when he says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Men of God, stop looking at pornography. And if you tell yourself, oh, it's not really pornography, it's just a TV show, or it's just a whatever, listen, you are fooling yourself. Stop eyeing women at the pool. Make a covenant with your eyes, as Job did. And jealously guard your heart, as Proverbs says, because it's the wellspring of life. That's what it flows from, is your heart. Guard it. Protect yourself. Protect your family. Live with integrity. On that note, biblical masculinity isn't just speaking the truth of God. It's living it as well. You know, in popular terms, don't just talk the talk, but what? 
walk the walk. That's what we are called to, men. We are made to be projectors, brothers. We project the image of Christ by being an example to one another and especially to our families. And if we're, if we're representing all the things on the left side here of this screen, how are our young men going to grow up into the things on the right side? They're looking at you. They're looking at me. It's a rhetorical question, guys. They won't. If they're seeing only this, they're not going to go here. Perhaps they will with an absolute miracle of God's grace, but they need to see it in you. They need to see it in you. We need, they need us to project biblical masculinity so they can see how to be godly men too. You know, in his letter to Titus, Paul says, show yourself in all respects, all respects. He says, to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. For the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness. That means to, to reject it, to renounce worldly passions, and to live, here's that word again, that phrase, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. I think biblical masculinity can almost be boiled down to the concept of self-control. Now, this was his admonition to a young pastor who was trying to show a church how to follow Jesus. And it was a simple command, really. It, it, be consistently godly. Easier said than done. He's saying, have integrity, live righteously, and, and do so by the grace of God, because you can't do it in your own strength. That, y'all, that is some great advice. It's got to be by God's grace. You know, it's been said, and I think this is accurate, that we don't reproduce what we say, we reproduce what we are. People see the things you do. So let's be faithful examples, keeping our eyes on the example of Christ and humbly trusting him to shape us in his image. All right, the, the plane is, is descending, but stick with me, okay? Um, biblical masculinity, being a man of God, means that we are not to be promise breakers. We ought to mean the things that we say and we ought to do the things that we say. You know, generally speaking, this means that we must be honest. I mean, after all, Proverbs 12 says that lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But those who deal faithfully are His delight. So obviously lying is, is, is something God hates. But it goes deeper than that even. We, we shouldn't say things flippantly, you know, or without giving any thought to the ramifications. One of the scariest passages in Scripture, to me anyway, um, especially as a person who, who tends to say things off the cuff a little too often, be a little too sarcastic. I read when Jesus says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. That's terrifying. Thank God those of us that are in Christ will not be judged by those words. But we will have to give account. 
we need to recognize the importance of being faithful and trustworthy in the things that we say and in our follow-through. And I'm not good at that. I need to work on that. And especially, I, I believe, in our marriages, you know, we, we have men, husbands, we have made a promise before God and before man to love and cherish and protect our brides. We need to be sure to be promise keepers, brothers. And I'm not talking about the conference back in the 90s. I'm talking about keeping our word. The things that we say should be our bond. God wants us to be promise keepers because that reflects his character. He wants us to be like him in faithfulness, and it gives him glory when we do so. As such, we need to follow through on our commitments. And, and, and watch our mouths. You know, in Deuteronomy 23, Moses wrote, You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And in the New Testament, Jesus added, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything else comes from evil. So please, friends, keep your word. Fulfill your duties as a man because this is what biblical masculinity looks like. Now I want you to take one last look at this list here um, in the next slide. Take another look at this list. Everything on the left side has one thing in common. Every single one of those. You, you go through procrastination, profligacy, you know, uh, prescribing, provoking, profanity, promiscuity, breaking promises. All of those things, every single one of them is a self-serving trait. Every single one. In a nutshell, it means it, it's doing or saying or thinking what you want whenever you want, but not doing or saying or thinking what you ought to do when you don't want to. Being self-serving is being selfish. Biblical manhood is not about being selfish. Instead, it's about being who God made you to be, and that is a servant leader. Can we understand that? Brothers, can, do you grasp this? That we're called to be servant leaders? As Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But then he says, when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 11. Listen, if we are men of God, we cannot be living selfishly. We need to be leading our homes and our leading in the church and leading in the community by being productive and by providing for and protecting our families and promoting what is good in others and by professing God's truth and projecting a lifestyle of integrity and faithfulness is consistent with our profession. I mean, do you agree to this? Okay. Can you imagine then how much of a difference it would make in our community if, if Christian men if Christians in general had the strongest families because we men were setting an example of biblical masculinity and that sets us apart from the world, wouldn't that be cool? All right, so let's end where we began. 
Paul wrote, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. But in the very next verse, he said, with equal authority, let everything you do be done with. Men of God, that is our charge. That is our calling. Act like men and do so with love. Will you bow with me? Father, I thank you for the chance to be able to preach your word to your people. God, I know we, we were a lot wider and, and shallower than usual. It was a kind of a, an overview today, but Father, I just ask for each man here, that you need the young men as well, that you will make us into godly men. Shape us, mold us, help us not to work against you, but to work for our own sanctification. Help us to try to do so, not in our own strength or in our own ability to control ourselves, but by the fruit of the Holy Spirit at work in us. We know that you can give us the ability to do whatever you have called us to do. We know that we will fail. But we also know, Lord, that that failure is our flesh. And we can continue to, to lean into Jesus and rely on the Holy Spirit. And he can give us the ability to accomplish things that we never thought possible. And I'm not talking about lifting cars or flying by flapping our arms. Lord, I'm talking about the ability to control ourselves, to control our appetites. You give us that power to control our anger to control our tongues. Lord, help us to be controlled by you. Lord, I want the world to look at McKinney, Texas and to see that there's an outpost here of truly godly men that are leading their families in a way that glorifies you. And I pray that's not just a crossroad Christian church, but that it's at every church here that, that follows the word. I, I pray, God, that we will be the start of something beautiful. Help us to love our wives as Christ loves his bride. And Lord, I know I have a very deep, selfish streak in me, and I pray, Father, that you will remove that for the sake of your own glory. And I pray that as we go home today, that we don't just leave the stuff that we heard here behind. Help us to walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen.